Chapter 8 of With Cortez in Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. With Cortez in Mexico by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 8 at Tezcuco. In each city through which they passed, and several of these were of vastly greater size and importance than Tepeaca, Roger was received with the same welcome and rejoicings that had greeted him there. The houses were decorated with flowers and garlands, dense crowds lined the streets, processions came out to meet him, banquets were given in his honor, and everything seemed gay and joyous. But Roger was low and depressed. To him the whole thing appeared a mockery. He seemed to see blood everywhere, and the fact that, as he learned from the casual remark of one of the envoys, numbers of victims were offered upon the altars on the evening before his arrival at each town, in order to please the gods and bring about favorable omens, added to his depression. And he thought that he had better a thousand times have been drowned with his father and friends, than be the cause of men being thus put to death. It was true that, as he was told, these captives were reserved for this purpose, and had they not been slain on that night, might have been sacrificed on the next. But this was a small consolation. It seemed to him that above the joyful cries of greeting he could hear the screams of agony of the victims and to such a pitch was he wrought up that, had he seen any whom he could have recognized as priests, he would have fallen upon them with his sword. But the priests held aloof from the gatherings. They knew not, as yet, how their chiefs would regard this stranger, and it was not their policy to join in welcoming one who might, afterwards, be denounced and sacrificed as an enemy of their religion nor, upon the other hand, would they commit themselves to hostility to one who might be held to be a god. From the summits of the Teocallis they looked down upon the great gatherings, angry that instead of, as usual, figuring in the chief places in the procession, they were forced to stand aloof. As in Egypt, the Aztec priests embraced within their order all the science and learning of the nation. They were skilled in the sciences of astrology and divination, and were divided into numerous ranks and classes. Those best instructed in music took the management of the choirs. Others arranged the festivals conformably to the calendar. Some superintended the education of the young of both sexes. Others had charge of the hieroglyphic paintings and records, and of the oral traditions while the rites of sacrifice were practiced by the chief dignitaries of the order. They were each devoted to the service of some particular deity, and had quarters provided within the spacious precincts of his temple. Here a certain number were always on duty, and men living there practiced the stern severity of conventual discipline. Thrice during the day, and once at night, they were called to prayers, they mortified the flesh by fasting and cruel penance, drawing blood from their bodies by flagellation, 
or by piercing themselves with the thorns of the aloe. When their turn of duty was over, they resided with their wives and families outside the temples. The great cities were divided into districts, placed under the charge of a sort of parochial clergy. These administered the rites of baptism, confession, and absolution, each of which strongly resembled that of the Christian religion. In baptism, the lips and bosom of the infant were sprinkled with water, and the Lord was implored to permit the holy drops to wash away the sin that was given to it before the foundation of the world, so that the child might be born anew. The secrets of confession were held inviolable, and penances were laid upon the penitents. There was one particularity in the Aztec ceremony of confession, namely, that the repetition of an offense once atoned for was deemed inexpiable, and confession was therefore made but once in a man's life, and generally deferred until a late period of it. One of the most important duties of the priesthood was that of education, to which certain buildings were appropriated within the enclosure of the principal temple of each city. Here, the youth of both sexes, of the middle and higher classes, were placed when very young, the girls being entrusted to the care of priestesses, for women exercised all sacerdotal functions except those of sacrifice. In these institutions the boys were drilled in monastic discipline. They decorated the shrines of the gods with flowers, fed the sacred fires, and took part in the religious chants and festivals. Those in the higher schools were initiated in the traditionary law, the mysteries of hieroglyphics, the principles of government, and in astronomical and natural science. The girls were instructed in all feminine employments, especially in weaving and embroidery. The discipline, both in male and female schools, was stern and rigid. The temples were supported by the revenue from lands bestowed upon them by successive princes. These were managed by the priests, who were considered as excellent masters, treating their tenants with liberality and indulgence. Besides this, they were entitled to the first fruits of all produce, and were constantly receiving rich offerings from the pious. The surplus, beyond what was required for the support of the priests, was distributed in alms among the poor, charity being strongly prescribed by the moral code of the nation. Thus, the Aztec religion was a strange mixture of good and evil. The moral discipline enforced by it was excellent. Many of its precepts resembled very closely those of Christianity, and yet the whole was contaminated by the wholesale sacrifices. It is supposed that this dual religion was the result of the mixture of two peoples, the mild and gentle tenets of the Toltecs being adopted by the fierce Aztec invaders, who added to them their own superstitious and bloody rites. All this, however, was unknown to Roger at the time. He saw the dark side of their religion only, and was ignorant that there underlay it a system which, in point of morality, love of order and method, and a broad charity, was in no way inferior to that practiced among Christian nations. For some reason, of which Roger was ignorant, but which was, doubtless, 
in order to avoid the delays occasioned by stoppages at large towns and to push on the faster towards the capital where the king and his counselors were impatient to behold the white stranger a detour was made the towns of puebla and cholula were avoided and the party pushed on rapidly across the plateau land they were now ascending where the air was again keen and piercing the road passed between two of the highest mountains in the north american continent the great volcano popocatapetl meaning the hill that smokes and iztakihuatl or the white woman so called from the bright robe of snow which extended far down its sides the lower part of these mountains was covered with dense forests above which rock lava and ashes extended to the summit of the crater of the volcano at night the party sheltered in one of the stone buildings erected by government at intervals along the road for the accommodation of travelers and couriers pushing on the next morning they came upon a view which caused an exclamation of surprise and delight to burst from roger at their feet lay the valley of mexico with its lakes glistening in the sunshine its cultivated plains and numerous cities and villages stretching away from the point at which he was standing were forests of oak sycamore and cedar beyond fields of yellow maize and aloe intermingled with orchards and bright patches of many colors these were flowers which were grown on a very large scale as they were used in vast quantities in the religious festivals and almost universally worn by the women in the center of the valley lay the great lakes their borders thickly studded with towns and hamlets rising from an island in the center of the largest of these was the city of mexico its great buildings and lofty teocallias being seen clearly through the dry atmosphere the envoys first pointed out the capital to roger and then another great city some distance to the right as being tezcuco beyond the lakes a barrier of dark hills rose forming a suitable background to the lovely prospect upon the road roger learned much from the tezcucan envoys of the character of the king of their country and of the emperor montezuma the grandfather of the present king had been the greatest and most powerful of the tezcucan princes in his youth he had gone through a series of strange adventures tezcuco had been captured the people subjugated by the tepanics and the king killed when the young prince was but fifteen years old the boy himself was thrown into a dungeon but escaped and fled to mexico and on the intercession of the king of that city was allowed to return and to live for eight years quietly in a palace belonging to the family when the tepanic usurper died his son maxtla who succeeded him determined to kill the rightful heir to the throne but being warned in time nezahualcoyotl escaped and for a long time wandered about the country hotly pursued by his enemies who were many times on the edge of capturing him but he was always sheltered by the peasantry at last the neighboring powers fearing the aggression of the tepanics united and routed them maxtla was put to death and the lawful prince placed upon the throne he showed great magnanimity 
granting a general amnesty, and then set about to remodel the government. Three departments were formed, the Council of War, the Council of Finance, and the Council of Justice, and in each of these bodies a certain number of citizens were allowed to have seats with the nobles and state officers. The highest body was composed of fourteen members, all belonging to the highest orders of nobles. This was called the Council of State, which aided the king in the dispatch of business and advised him in all matters of importance. Its members had seats provided for them at the royal table. Lastly, there was a tribunal known as the Council of Music. This was composed of the best instructed persons in the country, without regard of rank, and was devoted to the encouragement of all branches of science and art. All works on these subjects had to be submitted to them before they could be made public. They had the supervision of all the productions of art and the more delicate fabrics. They decided on the qualifications of the teachers of the various branches of science, inquired into the proper performance of their duties, and instituted examinations of the pupils. The council gave prizes for historical composition and poems treating of moral or traditional topics. It was, in fact, at once a board of education and a council of science and art. The kings of the three allied states had seats upon it and deliberated with the other members on the adjudication of the prizes. Thus Tezcuco became the center of the education, science, and art of Anahuac, and was at this time the head of the three allied kingdoms. Nezahualcoyotl greatly encouraged agriculture as well as all the productive arts. The royal palace and the edifices of the nobles were magnificent buildings and were upon an enormous scale, the Spaniards acknowledging that they surpassed any buildings in their own country. Not satisfied with receiving the reports of his numerous officers, the monarch went frequently in disguise among his people, listening to their complaints and severely punishing wrongdoers. Being filled with deep religious feeling, he openly confessed his faith in a god far greater than the idols of wood and stone worshipped by his subjects, and built a great temple which he dedicated to the unknown god. After fifty years' reign, this great monarch died, and he was succeeded by his son, Nezahualpili, who resembled his father in his tastes, encouraging learning, especially astronomical studies, and building magnificent public edifices. He was severe in his morals and stern in the execution of justice. In his youth he had been devoted to war and had extended the dominion of Tezcuco but he afterwards became indolent and spent much of his time in retirement. His Mexican rival took advantage of this, for as the rule of Tezcuco became relaxed, distant provinces revolted. The discipline of the army became shaken, and Montezuma, partly by force, partly by fraud, possessed himself of a considerable portion of its dominions, and assumed the title hitherto held by the Tezcucan princes, of emperor. These misfortunes pressed heavily on the spirits of the king, and their effect was increased by certain gloomy prognostics of a great calamity, which
which was shortly to overwhelm the country. His health rapidly gave way. He had died but two years before, and had been succeeded by his son, Kakama, the present king. A young prince, who was two and twenty years old, when he ascended the throne, after a sanguinary war with an ambitious younger brother. In Tezcuco, as in Mexico, the office of king was elective and not hereditary. It was, indeed, confined to the royal family. But the elective council, composed of the nobles and of the kings of the other two great confederate monarchies, selected the member of that family whom they considered best qualified to rule. Roger was greatly impressed with these accounts of the government of this strange country. It appeared to him that art and learning were there held of much higher account than they were in England, and it seemed more strange to him than ever that a people so enlightened could be guilty of such wholesale human sacrifices as those of which he had heard, and had indeed seen proof. Still, more that they could absolutely feast upon the flesh of these victims of their cruel superstitions. Descending into the valley, the party avoided, as before, the numerous cities in the plain. The Tezcucans told him that they did so simply because they were anxious to arrive as soon as possible at the capital. But as Roger learned from them that the sway of Montezuma was paramount in this part of the valley, he thought it probable that they feared the Aztecs might take him from their hands and send him direct to the emperor. After a long march across a richly cultivated country, they approached the town of Tezcuco, just as evening was closing in. A messenger had gone on ahead to announce the exact hour at which they would arrive, and a party of soldiers were stationed a short distance outside the town to escort them through the city to the royal palace. They formed up on either side of the party when they arrived, and, without a pause, the caravan kept on its way. Roger had been astonished at the magnificence of the houses of the wealthy, scattered for a long distance round the city, and at the extraordinary beauty of the gardens, with their shady groves, their bright flowers, their fish-ponds and fountains. But the splendor of the buildings of the capital surpassed anything he had before beheld. Not even in Genoa or Cadiz were there such stately buildings, while those of London were insignificant in comparison. The crowd in the streets were quiet and orderly, and, although they looked with curiosity and interest on the white stranger, of whose coming they had heard, evinced none of the enthusiasm with which he had been greeted at Tepeaca. This was natural enough, the inhabitants of a capital, being accustomed to splendid fates and festivals, are less easily moved than those of a small provincial town by any unaccustomed events, and are more restrained in the expression of their feelings. The dresses of the people were greatly superior to those he had seen hitherto. They wore over their shoulders a cloak made of cottons of different degrees of fineness according to the condition of the wearer. These and the ample sashes worn round the loins were wrought in rich and elegant figures, and edged with a deep fringe or tassels. The women went about as freely as the men. Instead of the cloaks, they wore mantles of fur or gorgeous featherwork. 
Beneath these were several skirts or petticoats of different lengths, with highly ornamented borders. Sometimes loose flowing robes were worn over these, reaching to the ankles, those of the upper classes being of very fine textures and prettily embroidered. Some of the women wore veils made of fine thread of the aloe, or that spun from the hair of rabbits and other animals. Others had their faces entirely exposed, their dark tresses falling luxuriantly over their shoulders. These, Roger learned afterwards, were Aztecs, the rest of the women of Anahuac mostly wearing the veil, which was, however, extremely thin and scarcely concealed the features. The guards ahead, with difficulty, cleared the way through the crowd until they at last arrived at the king's palace, a building of extraordinary splendor. A number of nobles, in gorgeous attire, received the party at the entrance, and, passing along a stately corridor, they entered a vast hall. A cornice of carved stonework, covered with thin plates of gold, ran round the walls, and from this dropped hangings of the most delicately embroidered stuffs. The roof was of carved cedar. The floor, a mosaic of stone of different colors, so delicately fitted together that they seemed one. At the farther end of the hall, upon a raised dais, was a throne. Upon this the young king was sitting, while a number of his counselors and nobles, together with several princesses and ladies of the court, were gathered around him. When Roger approached, he bowed low, saluting in Mexican fashion. The king rose as he approached, looking with lively curiosity and interest at the strange visitor of whom he had already received so many reports. Roger, on his part, regarded the king with no less interest. He saw before him a young man of three or four and twenty, with a bright, intelligent face. His figure showed signs of considerable strength as well as activity, and there was a certain martial air in his carriage that spoke of the soldier rather than of the king. The nobles had endeavored to impress upon Roger the necessity for him to salute the king by prostrating himself on the ground as they themselves did, but Roger had refused to comply with their request. King Hal himself would not expect me to go before him like a worm if he gave me audience, he said to himself, and I will not demean myself as an Englishman to bow as a slave before any other monarch. Besides, to do so would be to acknowledge that I was his humble subject, and would at once show that I have no pretension, whatever, to be the superior creature they seem to consider me. I will salute him as his nobles saluted me, paying due deference to his rank, and no more. The king himself did not seem displeased at Roger's breach of the usual etiquette. He looked with admiration at the tall figure of this strange white man, and at the frank and honest expression of his pleasant face, his blue eyes, and sunny hair. Whoever he may be, he comes not as an enemy, he said in a low voice to his sister, who was standing next to him. There is neither deceit nor treachery in that face. Then he said aloud to Roger, You are welcome, white stranger. We rejoice to see you in our courts. We have heard wonderful stories concerning you and about the people in the distant lands from which you come. 
and shall gladly hear them from your lips, for we are told that you speak our tongue. I thank you, King Kakama, and I am glad, indeed, that it is my good fortune to behold so great and magnificent a king. I have come, as you have heard, from a far country, towards the rising sun, so far that it takes many months to traverse the sea which divides it from you. But, had the distance been far greater than it is, I should have been more than repaid for the journey by the sight of you, and of this great city over which you rule. And is it true that your people move about the sea in floating castles, and that they fight with weapons that make a noise like thunder, and can batter down walls at a distance of two miles? They can kill men at more than that distance, sire, but for battering down walls they are used at shorter distances. The ships are, as you say, floating castles, and will carry hundreds of men, with provisions and stores for many months, besides merchandise and goods. These castles are armed with weapons such as you speak of, some of them carrying twenty or more, besides which each man carries a weapon of the same kind, but small and light in make, so that it can be carried on the shoulders. These weapons also make a great noise, though not comparable with that of the large pieces, which are called cannon. And they have animals on which they sit, and which carry them at a speed far greater than that at which a man can run? That is so, sire. Of what color are they, and of what form? They are all colors. Some are black, and some white, others brown, or gray, or roan, or bay. This answer seemed to surprise the king more than any other he had heard. All the beasts and birds with which he was acquainted were of the particular color which appertained to their species, and that the animals of any one kind should thus differ in so extraordinary degree from each other struck him as remarkable, indeed. Roger had always been fond of sketching, and had often whiled away dull hours on board ship with pencil and paintbrush, and his cousins at home had quite a collection of sketches that he made for them in foreign parts. He now said, "'If your majesty will order that gentleman, who is at present taking my likeness, to hand me a sheet of paper and his brushes, I will endeavor to draw for your majesty an outline of the animal I speak of, and which we call a horse.' At the king's order the scribe at once handed the necessary materials to Roger, who in three or four minutes dashed off a spirited sketch of a horse with a rider upon his back. The king was greatly struck with the representation. The Aztecs possessed the art of copying objects with a fair amount of accuracy, but the figures were stiff and wooden, without the slightest life or animation. To the king, then, this little sketch appeared almost supernatural. Here was before him an animal which looked alive, as if already in movement. He passed it to those next to him, and continued the conversation. And the men fight on the backs of those animals? The nobles and a certain portion of the troops fight on horseback, the rest of the army on foot. And are not these animals frightened at the terrible noises made by the weapons you speak of? They speedily become accustomed to them, your majesty, just as men do 
and will carry their rider into the midst of the enemy, however great the noise. Some other time I will draw for your majesty a representation of one of our knights, or captains, charging in full armor, which is, as you have perhaps heard, made of a metal that is not known here. And these weapons that you speak of are made of the same metal? They are mostly made of that metal, sire, though sometimes they are made of a metal which we call brass, which is a compound of copper, and of another metal called tin, which adds greatly to its strength and hardness. But how do they work? What machinery can be used to hurl a missile at so vast a distance? There is no machinery, sire. The weapon is a hollow tube of vast strength, closed at one end, with only a small hole left there by which fire can be applied. A black powder, composed of various substances, is placed in the tube and pressed up to the end, a wad of cotton or other material being forced down upon it. A large ball, made of this metal, which is called iron, and almost the same diameter as the tube, is pushed down upon the wad, and the weapon is pointed at the enemy, or at the wall to be knocked down. When fire is applied to the small hole, the powder at once explodes with a noise like thunder, and the ball is sent through the air with so great a speed that the eye cannot follow its flight, and all that it strikes goes down before it. Even one of these captains on his horse? the king asked. Fifty of them, sire, were they ranged up in line, one behind the other. Will you be able to teach us to make such weapons? Your Majesty, I have had a share in the using of these weapons, but not in the making of them, and they require great skill in their manufacture. I know not whether iron stone exists in this country, and were it found, it would require a long experiment and great knowledge to manufacture a cannon from it. As to the powder, it is composed of three ingredients. One is charcoal, which can be obtained wherever trees grow. Another is called by us saltpeter, and the third sulfur. But I cannot say whether either is found in this land. Nor, Your Majesty, do I think that such knowledge, could I impart it, would be a blessing to the land. On the contrary, the battles would be far more terrible and bloody than they are now. Vast numbers would be slain, and valor and bravery would avail but little against these terrible missiles. No, the king said thoughtfully, you would take few prisoners if you fought with such weapons as these. You take some prisoners, I suppose. Yes, your majesty, we always take as prisoners those who ask for mercy. And what do you do with them? We treat them honorably and well, as is befitting men who have fought bravely. We exchange them for men of our own side who have been taken prisoners by the enemy, or if they are knights or nobles, they pay a ransom according to their rank to their captor, and so return home. That is good, the young king said, with animation, though it differs altogether from our usages. But then, how are their altars of the gods to be served? I believe, Roger said, that your majesty's grandfather erected a temple here to the unknown god. It is the unknown god, unknown to you, but known to us, that the white peoples across the sea worship. He is a good and gentle and loving god, 
and would abhor sacrifices of blood. The king did not reply for a minute. The introduction of human sacrifices was a comparatively recent innovation in Tezcuco, and although the Aztecs had lately almost forced their own hideous rites upon their neighbors, there were many who were still, at heart, opposed to them. He turned the subject by saying, "'There will be much for you to tell me when we have leisure. At present the banquet waits.' The eighteen months that had elapsed since the wreck of the swan had prepared Roger for taking part in such scenes as those in which he was at present placed. From living so long among natives, and in native costume, he had acquired something of their manner, which, unless under strong excitement, was quiet and dignified. He had done this the more because, whenever he went out, all eyes had been upon him, and he had felt that it was necessary, so far as he could, to support the mysterious reputation he possessed. He had lost, alike, the sailor walk and carriage, the careless gaiety of a boy, and the roughness of one brought up to life at sea. He himself was only half conscious of this transformation, but to one who had seen him last, when he sailed from Plymouth, it would have appeared absolutely marvellous. Undoubtedly, it impressed both the king and his nobles most favorably, and as the party followed the king and Roger to the banqueting hall, there was a chorus of approval of the manners, bearing, and appearance of the white stranger. The banquet was similar, but on a vastly greater scale, to that of which Roger had partaken at Tapiaca. Mexico contained, within comparatively narrow limits, extreme diversities of climate, and by means of the swift couriers, the kings and nobles could place upon their tables the tropical fruits and vegetables from the zone of the sea, the temperate fruits from the lofty plateau land, and the products of the rich and highly cultivated valley of the capital. The twenty councillors sat down at table with the king. Other tables were spread, at which the principal nobles feasted, while the king's wife and sister and other ladies dined in the same hall but had tables apart. The king abstained from asking questions of Roger about his country during the meal, but conversed with him concerning his journey and his impressions of the country, and inquired particularly whether he was perfectly satisfied with the treatment he had received from the merchants. Roger assured him that nobody could have been kinder or more courteous than they had been, and that he hoped his majesty would express his satisfaction at their conduct. "'That has already been done,' the king said. "'The reports of my envoys were sufficient for that. They have been raised in rank, have received permission to carry specially decorated banners, with other privileges and immunities.' After dinner was over, the king, without waiting as usual for the smoking and entertainments of musicians, dancers, and acrobats, rose, saying to Roger, "'I am too anxious to talk with you, to take pleasure in these amusements. Come with me now.' He led the way to the entrance to the private apartments. These were enclosed by magnificent hangings, which were drawn aside by two attendants as he approached them. The walls were here entirely hidden by hangings, and the floor covered with a thick carpeting of richly dyed cotton stuff. 
the air was heavy with odors of perfumes the king led the way to an apartment of considerable size although small in comparison to the two great halls they had left couches of quilted mats covered with silken embroidery extended round the room and a general air of comfort as well as luxury pervaded it from the open windows a view extended over a lovely garden below and then across the lake to the walls and temples of mexico shining in the moonlight and dotted with innumerable spots of fire on the summits of the teocales the room itself was lighted with open lamps in which burned cotton wicks embedded in wax cacama clapped his hands and a young noble in attendance entered the king bade him summon six of his counsellors and tell the queen and the princess that he awaited them in a short time these entered the pomp and ceremony of royalty were to a considerable extent laid aside in tezcuco in the interior of the palace the custom there differing much from that which prevailed at the court of montezuma where the emperor never relaxed in the slightest in exacting the lowliest and most profound homage from all who approached him End of chapter 8